0: Church, would you join me in prayer this morning? Father in heaven, we're not here together today. We're scattered abroad in our homes. And Lord, we would desire to be here together, to worship you together, to lift up your name together and to sit under the preaching of word together so that we might be encouraged together and built up together. But Lord, we're together in spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that even though we're not here in person, we are still together. We thank you that you have joined us through your spirit in Christ Jesus. We thank you that because of that, we are never alone. The people of God are all around us. And you never leave us nor forsake us. So, Lord, this morning, I pray for all of those um, Wherever they are, Lord, whatever situation they're going through at this moment, Lord, whatever they're experiencing in their life, I pray, Father, that even in this season you would be sufficient for them, that they would turn to you, that they would find their sufficiency in you, that they would find all their needs met in you, Lord, that they would find joy in you, even in this season, Lord, I pray for our church, Lord, for all your children. Lord, as they're tuning in this morning, Lord, I just pray, Father, that in this season, that they would be encouraged and edified and built up. Keep them from falling into the, the pit of mire, my, my Lord, of discouragement and fear and dismay and anxiety. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord... I just pray, Father, that they would find joy and comfort in you in this season. Lord, this morning, wherever they're tuning in from, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives, that we would be filled with your Spirit as we've sat under or joined in in the worship and now sit under the preaching of the Word. And I pray, Father, that you would be glorified in this. So, Lord, would you just be with us this morning, so that you might be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Well, church, I'm glad that you're joining us online this morning. And today we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Judges. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to encourage you to actually follow along in your Bibles this morning because we're going to cover a lot of Scripture. We're going to be walking very quickly through this. And so it would be best if you had your Bible open and you could just follow along. Now, the book of Judges is probably the most discouraging disturbing and shocking book of the Bible. In fact, many people struggle with the idea of God being merciful and compassionate, often because of the book of Judges. But as we get into this book today, as we begin to see the depth of this book, I want to first begin by summarizing some of the important facts that will help us to understand the book of Judges. So let me begin by by saying this, the Lord has set Israel free from slavery in Egypt through Moses, and he was taking them to the land that he had promised their forefathers that was flowing with milk and honey, as we read in Exodus 3 verse 8, but sadly the journey that should have only taken about 2 to 3 weeks ended up taking more about 40 years as a consequence of israel sinning against god while in the wilderness now we come to a passage of scripture in Numbers 33 and verses 50 through 56. And I'm just going to skim through this, but in this passage while they're in the wilderness, God instructs them that when they finally do come into the promised land, that they were to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And then we move forward and we or we move to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 20 and we're going to look at verses 10 through 18, but I'm just going to skim through them, so follow along. But in this passage in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 15, God instructs Israel, now listen carefully because this is important for you to understand as we go through this sermon and the rest of the book. God instructs Israel what to do when faced with war with any people on the outside of the borders of the promised land. And what Israel was to do to those people, should they face war with them, was to offer them terms of peace. Now, if they accepted those terms of peace, then those people would be put to forced labor serving the Israelites. If, on the other hand, the terms were rejected, they were to put all the men to death And all the women and children and everything else was to be kept as the spoils of war. That's what they were to do with those who were not within the land of Canaan, the promised land. But then we look at Deuteronomy 20, the same chapter, verses 16 through 18. And here he tells them what they're to do with the inhabitants that were within the promised land when they get in there. And what they're told to do is, we already see in Numbers 33, as that they were to drive the people out of the land. But now, once in here, they're to utterly destroy the people that still remained man, woman, and child. But he tells them why in verse 18. Listen to this that they may not teach you. To do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. See, they're to be wiped out from the land so that Israel wouldn't be guilty of committing the same sins as the inhabitants of Canaan. But the question then is, what were some of the abominable practices of the Canaanites? Or the Canaanites, sorry. To sum it up briefly, here are a few of their abominable practices. Firstly, sacrificing their children to the god of Moloch by fire. Secondly, sorcery and divination to gain knowledge in hopes of controlling the outcome of events. Thirdly, temple prostitution, both male and female, combined with bestiality as a form of worship to gain the favor of their gods. What's more, the Canaanites believed that the most important thing in life, listen, were material prosperity, physical satisfaction, and human pleasure. This is what they lived for. And this is why Israel was to utterly destroy the inhabitants of Canaan. You see, Israel was to bring the divine judgment of God upon the inhabitants of Canaan. And Israel was to wipe them out so that Israel themselves would not be tempted to indulge in their practices. Because you see, the land of Canaan was a land where God would be their God and Israel would be his holy people, a priesthood unto God. And Israel would live in obedience to God as a holy nation and God would bless them with safety, with security, and with providing them with all of their needs. But by the time we come to the book of Judges, Moses has since long passed. And Joshua has already led Israel into the promised land and has begun conquering the land and now Joshua also has died. And instead of living as one nation under God, Israel reverts to tribalism where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Which then leads them to spiral into sin, the sin of disobedience and idolatry, and becoming more like the wicked Canaanites that they were sent to utterly destroy. And as we go through the book of Judges, there's a very clear pattern that develops as we read through this book. And there are four things that, that, that pop out in this pattern. Firstly, we see that Israel wanders from God into sinful disobedience. Secondly, we see God disciplines Israel and he uses their enemies to do so. Thirdly, we see that Israel turns and repents and they call out to God to save them. And fourthly, God then raises up a judge or a redeemer to save them. And so the question might be, why preach through the book of Judges? The answer is because the book of Judges teaches us three things relevant for us today, or at least three things one of the most vibrant and clear things that it teaches us is man's sinful depravity and man's natural bent away from God. Secondly, and more importantly, it teaches us the faithfulness of God and his grace. And this then serves to highlight the need and hope for a better judge A better Redeemer. And so today we want to take a look at the slippery slope of the subtlety of sin. So, the first point out of the four that I have today, I want to first draw your attention to the subtlety of sin. So, if you have your Bibles open, join me as I read Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And here's what we read. Now, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Now, I want you to pay attention here because this is important. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, so God has given the land into the hand of the tribe of Judah. Judah. And then in verse 3, we read, And Judah said to Simeon, or to the tribe of Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him. Now, I want you to notice the extreme subtlety of sin, maybe you missed it, or maybe you saw it. Who shall go first to fight against them for us, Lord? is the question that they're asking him. And I want you to pay attention to the Lord's answer. Judah shall go up. the tribe of Judah, I have given the land. now watch this into His hand. You see, the Lord is saying, when Judah goes to fight, they will win the battles because I have given them the land. I have given them victory over their enemies already. But notice what the tribe of Judah does. Judah, instead of going off to war and conquering the land given to them, Judah turns around and says, hey... Simeon, come and join us. Now, it may seem like no wrong done here. Because Judah was faithful, right? I mean, they went. They did exactly as God had commanded them. But they just did it a little differently than what God had commanded They went, but they asked another tribe to come with them. Now, to us, this may seem irrelevant or insignificant. But isn't that exactly how sin starts? We do what we're supposed to do, but maybe we just do it a little differently than how we're instructed or commanded. We pay our taxes, but we kind of bend the truth a little bit so that it bends into our favor more than we actually ought to. We drive speed limit. We just add an additional 20 kilometers on top of it because the cops don't care if you go 20 over. So these things seem insignificant to us. The changes we make can be so subtle that we don't even actually see anything wrong with what we're doing. The issue, however, is that we get so comfortable with it that it doesn't bother our conscience anymore, and we actually don't see any wrong with it. But what ends up happening Is that it's a very gentle slope. And we slowly slide further across that line. You see, Judah should have just gone up and fought. Because the Lord was clear that he had already given them the land. So no enemy was going to keep it from them. But I want you to pay attention. How subtle... The slip towards disobedience continues. So Judah goes up and he conquers, wiping out the people in that area. But Adonai Bezek, the lord of Bezek, or the king, he fled. He got away. But then we read in verses 6 and 7, follow along. Adonai Bezek fled. But they, that's Israel or Judah, sorry, they pursued him and caught him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done. So God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now, we could spend time just unpacking that, but I don't want to lose the grand narrative of the book, so I want to keep on track with this. The only thing I will say is this, is that cutting off the king's thumbs made him clumsy with weapons, and cutting off his toes made him unstable on his feet. And so this then would make him an ineffective strong man or in essence making him a weak man who couldn't fight, which in those days would then make him an ineffective king and leader and it served as a form of humiliation. And then the tribe of Judah, after having done this, they brought him to jerusalem and at this time jerusalem or the israel had not yet conquered jerusalem and they dropped him off there and eventually he dies there now if you actually are paying attention it becomes a little more clearer of what the act of disobedience is because as you remember The Lord had not endorsed this action. They tortured him and they let him live. And that's not what the Lord had commanded. Whereas what the Lord had commanded them was to simply put everyone to death by by the sword and to destroy the rest. Now, the justification here could be made, well, yes, they didn't kill him. They let him live, but he was ineffective after this. He was a a non-threat, so what's the big deal? And isn't that often how we think of sin as well? It wasn't a big deal, so why bother? Why make such a big deal out of it? But here's the thing: the big deal was that they were subtly getting more complacent in disobeying God and not recognizing and seeing it as sin. They were making a like matter of disobedience towards God. And so in our first point, we see the subtlety of sin. Now, my second point, I want us to see that sinful subtleties lead to open liberties. Point number two: sinful subtleties lead to open liberties. Again, we read in Josh, or sorry, Judges one twenty-one, where we read, "But the people of Benjamin, listen." Okay. So first, Judah just didn't go up by themselves; they had Simeon come along. Then instead of killing the king, they tortured him and let him live until he died. Now watch the progression here, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin, listen, did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So do you see the progression here? And so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, the belief is that it was the prophet Samuel who wrote this book. And so he's writing, looking back, going, yeah, even to this day, the Israelites and Jebusites are living together in Jerusalem. Now, watch as they simply begin to take open liberties that are now outright an outright act of disobedience towards God. Look at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth-Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, or the Canaanites... Sorry, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now listen, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Do you remember at the beginning of the sermon what God said they were to do with those outside of the borders of the promised land? Those they were to put to forced labor. Those who remained in the land, they were to utterly destroy. But Israel has wandered far away from that now. At this point, Israel is openly disobeying God. And instead of destroying the people, they put them to forced labor. Slavery, if you will. This was something... They were to offer to the nations outside of the promised land, not to those inside. Because you see, now sin becomes justifiable. Why? Because, well, I just think about this for a moment. There's actually some benefit to this if we don't kill them, right? This can actually become profitable for us. And so this trend continues. Then we read in verse 29. And Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, did not drive out the Canaanites. So the Canaanites lived among them. In verse 30, we read that the tribe of Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. And they lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. And then we read that the tribe of Asher did the same. And the tribe of Naphtali did the same. But the Amorites at this point started pushing back and even held their grounds and held to the lower plains. We read. And so what we're seeing here now is Israel's beginning to spiral out of control into the sin of disobedience. They've abandoned the mission of God that he'd given to them, and they're living among the pagans, all the while they're profiting from them. Now, the third point I want us to see is that no matter how tempting sin is, how good it looks... How profitable it might be to us. The third point is this. There are always consequences to sin. So Judges chapter 2. And let's read the first five verses. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt. And brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. And they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochem, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. You see, Judges serves to teach us truths we need to know in our world today. You see, to treat the subtleties of sin as a light matter will in time lead to the blatant, opened disobedience towards God. And the consequences of sin always comes at a great price. And here we see the angel of the Lord tiding or scolding Israel for not obeying his voice. And the consequences of their disobedience was that they would never be rid of their enemies within their own borders. Their enemies would forever be a thorn in their side. And the false gods of their enemies would forever be a constant snare an enticement for them to sin. We need to listen to what the word of God is telling us here. We cannot treat sin lightly. It comes with heavy consequences. But you know what? There is a judgment coming. And we will all be judged for our sin. But there is hope. There is hope. You see, when we read in chapter 2, verse 1, of the angel of the Lord, the word the is a definite article. It is the angel of the Lord. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. This language is only used when speaking of God. And so theologians agree that this is what is referred to as a theophany, or in other words, it's the it's the pre-incarnate Christ, or a Christophany. Some would use that. So this is Christ, the the angel of the Lord here is actually Jesus Christ before he came in his physical form, before he became man. Now. This is verified when we look at the language and even the personal pronouns of how the angel of the Lord speaks. Look at verse 1. He says this, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. You see, this becomes very clear that this is Jesus Christ and it can't be anyone other. And notice that he says that he will never break his covenant with them. Here is where hope comes in no matter how dark things have become, no matter how far you've thrown yourself away and into sin, there is hope. There are consequences for sins indeed. In fact, Galatians 6 verse 7 tells us, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For what a man sows, that he will also reap. And yet, in spite of their sins, and their consequences. He says that he will not break his covenant. Here we see the faithfulness and the grace of God towards wandering sinners. And to further show his grace and faithfulness, we know from hindsight now that God would ratify a new and better covenant where his grace would be on full display not just for Israel but for people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation so how does knowing this impact us today well firstly we find ourselves in the same sin situation as Israel and the Canaanites did. Our society has spiraled deep into the same sins that were prevalent in their days. It would be hard to argue, if not even impossible, that North, the North American values are not different or no different than that of the Canaanites and Israel felt snare to. You see, like the Canaanites, material prosperity, physical satisfaction, and human pleasure are the passions that are most important to us in our society today. And like the Canaanites, We chase after these things through a variety of means which include finding physical satisfaction and pleasure through sex in any debased fashion as each one chooses, and even sacrificing our children through abortion in order to acquire the things and the lifestyle that I want So that I can be who I want. It really is true. There really is nothing new under the sun. And as God judged both the Canaanites and Israel. God will judge our world today. For the abominable sinful indulgences. But there is hope. There is good news. There is hope, and it's in Jesus Christ who put in a new and better covenant that he will never break. And the only way to escape from the wrath of God and the judgment of God is by faith in Jesus Christ who took our sin upon himself and died in our place, absorbing the wrath of God on our part. And what's more, this new covenant is for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, so whereas Israel, as the people of God, were the tool by which God executed his judgment upon the inhabitants of Canaan, under this new and better covenant, the people of God are not sent out to execute God's judgment upon unbelievers, but to make them aware of their sin and invite them to come and receive the same grace by faith that we have received that he's extended to us. So here's our takeaway. As those who have been forgiven through Jesus Christ and saved through Him. Ask yourself the question this morning are we making light of sin? Is sin not a big deal or a big matter? We should not make light of sin. As His chosen and saved people, we're called to be holy as He is holy so that the world around us would see the goodness of God through us. And the world, particularly in this time, should see that we are holy, meaning that we are different in that we are people of righteousness and that we are people of hope. And then we share the reason of the hope that is within us so that they too might come and bow before Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins and become people of righteousness and hope in a world of darkness. As we pray, I would just... Like to encourage you that if you would like for someone to pray with you, to please contact us via our website or call the church's phone number. We would love to pray with you. Father in heaven, as we look into the book of Judges, we see that the wickedness displayed there was not just by a people long ago who lived in ignorance. But we see that lived out among us today. And Lord, we were such as these. But by your mercy, you reached out. You poured out your mercy upon us and you saved us. Lord, if there's anyone joining us online today who has never known the perfect and the beautiful forgiveness that is available through Jesus Christ, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would draw on them. That you would bring them close to you. And that you would grant them repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ. So that they might become a holy people. And that they might become a people of righteousness. And a people of hope. And so Lord I pray that we would not make light of sin. I pray Lord that you would open our eyes. That we would see the absolute wickedness of sin. Even when it seems so little. Father, work within us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Raise us up so that we might take the good news of salvation to a people in darkness. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for saving us out of our own wickedness. And I pray, Lord, that we would take this good news and run with it into the darkness so that others, too, might be saved. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.